Hey folks, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Mason Gravely. Today, we are talking to Nicolette Jones and Mark Johnson, who are the first people that we know of to complete a ski traverse of the Colorado Trail. So if you've ever heard of the Colorado Trail, it's nearly 500 miles from Durango, Colorado, way in the San Juan Mountains, all the way to just about to Denver. It's like right on the outskirts of Denver. And it's a, basically a grand tour of the Rocky Mountains here in Colorado. I say here in Colorado. I'm not there anymore, but there in Colorado. And uh, I've done most of it on bike, and that was hard enough. Tons of it you couldn't even walk. It is crazy to me to think you could ski this and do it skiing, like the danger, the cliffs. Uh, it was treacherous in places in the sense of thinking about it covered in snow and ice. And uh, Nick and Mark are going to tell us about this unbelievable experience, how they pulled it off, where the inspiration came from, and getting through the navigation, the the emotions, the physical challenge, gear failure and malfunctions, and how they did this. This is so crazy. And why no one's ever done it before. So I'll be honest, this kind of was one of those episodes that I really thought, wow, kind of hits you. Anything is possible. So congrats to Nick and Mark. They also recently got engaged, which is awesome. So we're going to talk about that as well. I guess if you make it through that and you make it through some of the other stuff they talked about, you can make it through anything. So good luck, y'all. And thanks for being on the show and talking about this crazy adventure. Let's jump in. All right, folks, you heard a little bit about Nick and Mark's story in the intro, but I wanted to welcome them to the show. Welcome. How are y'all doing? Good. How are you, Mason? Doing well, doing well. So so I always ask this first, and I think it's two different places. I'm not sure different towns, but I know it's at least different computers. Uh, Where are y'all coming from today, and where is home for you if those aren't the same places? Right now, I'm in Albuquerque, New Mexico, uh, visiting my family. They're still in the in the town that I grew up in, but home right now is is Central Colorado. I'm in uh, Salida in the summers and and Leadville in the winters. So I'm from Cheyenne, Wyoming. Like I was born, raised there, graduated from high school there. I'm talking to you from a computer at my mom's house in Inglewood. But I'm I'm with Nick is that I'm usually most at home, like near the Arkansas Valley, like Boring Fork Valley area. I'm tempted to just say Aspen. You know, I've worked the last job that I've worked there for like the last seven years is in Aspen as a as a bike shop mechanic. And I definitely feel most at home there. So Wow. Very different place. Cheyenne to Aspen. Going up in the world. Not just kidding. Yeah, that's that's really cool, y'all. Thanks for sharing that. That is um kind of all over that uh, Rocky Mountain West. And uh, I used to live in Inglewood, so I know exactly where that is, Mark. Um, But been to all those places. So, Nick, you said Leadville in the winter. Good gracious. You go (laughs) higher elevation. What what draws you there in the winter? Is there anything specific? Is it just the snow or a job? What, What makes you jump from Salida to Leadville? Yeah, there's there's always something bringing me back, but I I work at a small ski resort up there. I work at Ski Cooper in the winters. So that's that's kind of the main reason for coming back in the winters, but really, yeah, the backcountry skiing around Leadville um makes it a pretty appealing place to be. That's really cool. So, so what I want to hear about is, you know, the story that 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 drew you to the show in the first place and what started this whole thing off was 
The first documented ski traverse of the Colorado Trail. Tell us about where this idea came from, who had the idea, what it was like to get ready for it, and, and maybe some of the reactions. But we'll start with where'd the idea come from based on the your I don't know, your your backpacking experience or skiing experience. Like it, it you had to have experience here, but tell us about the ideation, because there's usually a story there. For sure. Yeah, the story that we usually tell people is when I was um I guess in 2020, I was hiking the Continental Divide Trail. Mark came up with this idea while I was on trail that we should should ski the Colorado Trail. And when he initially told me, I told him, no, that that's ridiculous because winter camping is terrible. But <laughs> <laughs> Mark had never had never been winter camping at the time. He he stayed excited about the idea long enough for, for me to get on board. By the time he actually had the experience of, of sleeping in the snow for the first time, I was already full fully sold and committed. So we were, we were in for the attempt. <laughs> Holy cow. That is awesome. So, so did you do the whole continental divide trail, Nick? I did. Yeah. Were you all together at that time? Yeah, we were. That was the longest that we had, had spent apart. The first, we weren't able to see each other for the first two months that I was on trail. And Mark, Mark was working that summer. Um, in, in Aspen. Mark, tell us about that. What was that like to have Nick out there on the trail, you know, doing this epic thing, but ultimately away from you? I mean, was it stressful or worrisome or anything like that? Were you jealous? Like, tell us about what it was like. Yeah, I mean, it's a little bit embarrassing for me, uh, honestly, is because part of the reason why I wasn't out there was just because I had become so attached to the idea that I don't like hiking. You know, I wish there was a better way to say that, but uh, Nicolette had the idea to kind of do it as like a post-graduation college trip. And I was like, yeah, it's great. Like you should do that and like go on your adventure. And she wanted me to go. And uh, no joke, I was like, mm, I don't really like hiking. Uh, I think at that point, we had only been dating for maybe a year. So I, if I had to reevaluate everything, you know, I definitely would have gone. And I, I do like hiking now. Uh, also, <laughs> at the time, I was, you know, I think when she'd had the idea to do the trip was right when the onset of the COVID pandemic had started. And so we, I guess nobody really had any clue about how long lasting it would be. But I still thought that I might be doing some mountain bike racing that summer because uh the previous summer i had like a, a pretty good uh mountain bike race season by my own measure so i was like oh, i really would like to get another season and mountain bike nationals were supposed to be winter park again and i really didn't want to miss out on that and then the whole season kind of wound up being a wash because of um pandemic restrictions so you know if i could go back i definitely would do it again and and yeah her being away was hard um for sure but I think that a majority of Nicolette and my relationship has been long distance. And I would say that generally speaking, when we're further apart, we feel like more resolved in our relationship. So yeah, you know, I was happy that she was out there and doing it. And, and I think part of the idea to ski the Colorado trail came from, I think kind of my desire to, to do something similar with her. So 
Wow, that is so interesting. So, so there's so much y'all both said. If if you don't like hiking, I, I hear through hiking the CDT is a lot of hiking. So that's totally logical. <laughs> like you know, that, what, what, glutton for punishment. If you got out there, and you're like, I actually hate hiking, but I'm gonna do 2,600 miles of it. But also, Winter Park's right there on the trail, so you could have just said, Hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna go with you, take a break. Do this mountain bike trail. I don't know if the hiking endurance necessarily translates over to uh, to mountain bike racing, but yeah, there's got to be something you gain from it. Uh, but not always. I used to long distance bike ride and then try to play basketball afterwards, and it was horrible. Just have, like your your muscles, it does not translate at all. But so so Nick, that experience. I mean, that had to be a totally unique trail experience. What do you think was different about the through hiking experience of the CDT? through covid how obviously probably more or less people out there but also you know that uh, maybe just not interacting with anybody hardly other than other through hikers which I i don't know if there would be more or less we have a theory on the show i know this is a really long question when there's a some sort of recession or some sort of you know something like a pandemic definitely saw it post 9 11 and post 2008 housing market crash so many more people go on adventures because it's that it's that break or that pivotal moment in their life where they say you know what I'm, I'm going for it was there anything like that with you nick and tell us about the experience of doing it through a pandemic yeah so i think that first summer after kind of a lot of the these covid restrictions started the trail was was way slower and then it wasn't until kind of the next year that a lot of the long distance trails saw that that boom that you're talking about. But yeah, the year that I was on trail was was a really slow year for through hikers. I think a lot of people postponed their hike. And that was actually the first through hike that I'd done. So it was, you know, bound to be a unique experience for me no matter what. Wow, you went for it. Yeah, yeah. I was I was lucky enough to be able to to still get out there and do it. But yeah, based on what I've heard from from other through hikers and how the the CDT is growing now, is there's definitely a lot, a lot less trail trail support and uh, a lot less just a lot less hikers on trail. And I was I saw very few other hikers. I probably saw going the same direction as I was. I think I saw I met six other hikers maybe, and then I saw maybe twenty other hikers going the other direction. Which you know I think this year there was like there was something like 3000 people hiking the CDT. Yeah, those were those were pretty small numbers, but I mean it was just it worked out so so well for me. That was just that was the right way for me to spend that summer. I think a lot of people who initially postponed kind of their like outdoor recreation for that summer ended up regretting it after kind of seeing how how the summer played out and just dealing with um covid restrictions were a lot easier when when I was just living outside and it was it was really easy to to stay healthy and and minimize my contact in a way where I didn't feel like I was like putting putting other people at risk. I bet there were so many nights and days that were pristine and the the solitude, uh, the wilderness, uh, nature being more comfortable to be near the trail because the lack of people. I bet that was maybe the best year to do it. And not only that, but for your first through hike, you jump into the most desolate of the Triple Crown trails, the highest elevation, and considering COVID, gosh, I, I bet I bet you saw some really cool stuff. For sure, yeah, it was it was such an incredible experience. Um, 
yeah, I feel, I feel so lucky to have that, that experience in so many ways. And yeah, like you said, just, just being able to, I don't know, just worry about like what I was eating and where I was getting water and where I was camping every day felt, felt like such a luxury compared to some of the things that people were worried about, like living in, in bigger cities or, um, dealing with the pandemic and, in in a much different way than I was. Yeah. Sounds like you dealt with it in a great way. Mark, how was the summer in Aspen during that time? The Aspenite crowd is obviously like pretty unique. And I would say I experienced much more during the pandemic. What you were talking about is I think for a lot of like the hyper rich people, which just for clarity, I'm not part of that class. I live in a car there. Um, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But that it definitely the pandemic provided everybody who had the means to just kind of like swarm, swarm the city and be like, you know, we can't be in New York City. Uh, so we're going to go to the mountains, uh, which I think pretty much all mountain towns. It was a big problem in Crested Butte and uh, even places like Boulder. Like I know that there were several kind of like, I don't know, controversial mag- like articles and like outdoor magazines about people from larger urban areas going to Boulder and like misrepresenting like the the experience of, um, that people generally have in the Colorado Rockies uh, just from like a city perspective. I don't know if there's a better way to say that, but yeah. Yeah. And I mean, circling back to the bike racing thing and, and why I didn't join Nicolette, you know, the previous year at mountain bike nationals, I gotten a uh, fourth place in like the single speed category. And it's surprisingly competitive. Like there's actually the, a couple of like legitimately professional racers that go and do it. And so I was just kind of hoping that another season of training and everything could enable me to like get to my goals. And so I just didn't feel like the hiking was totally in line with that, which I think might be, have more carry more weight to it than like, I just don't like hiking. Although I will say I joined uh, Nicolette for several weeks in New Mexico on the CDT and there was at least one, um, I don't know if fight is the right word, but disagreement <laughs> over me just wishing uh, I was on a bicycle on a dirt road instead of um, hiking. So I don't know if Nicola has anything to add to that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, you know, that was that was definitely uh, a good le- learning experience for us. Kind of some of the first backpacking we'd, we'd really gotten to do together. But the CDT uh, is a lot of road walking, you know, it's, like the the way that people talk about the CDT in terms of long trails is that it's you go through some of the most like beautiful places in the country, but you also go through some of the most boring stretches of hiking, which is just like walking along dirt or sometimes even paved roads in the middle of the desert. Yeah, Mark was only only able to join me for for really like two weeks, and there was there's a lot of road walking for for those two weeks when when he was out there, and so I don't think he was sold on hiking uh, or on through hiking by that experience. I suppose to really answer your uh, pandemic question of what it was like there in, in Aspen is it was, it was crowded. There was really wasn't the bike racing opportunity that I was hoping for, but you know, hindsight's always 2020. We have expected that a uh, pandemic wasn't the best for bike racing. <laughs> Not the best or the best in the sense, less competition, but uh, also 
<laughs> races were few and far between, if anything. So, all right. So, so Nick, you threw high the CDT, as we've been saying, and Mark, you got to watch from afar. And after that experience, tell us about the, you know, coming up with this idea. You did mention the idea uh, about where it came from, that experience, but what was getting ready for this like to, what, what was time of the year? Like, I know you did it in the spring. Was that from the beginning, what you wanted to do? And what was... Um, some of the unique considerations, what skills did you have to learn to feel prepared for this? Because I'm not going to lie, it feels pretty daunting to me, but I'm not much of a cold weather person. Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that help make this show possible. Today's podcast is sponsored by Let's Get Checked, a worldwide leader in at-home health tests that put you in control of your own health care. What I loved about Let's Get Checked is it gives you the freedom to understand what's happening with your body with their 30-plus at-home tests, everything from men's health to women's health uh, to general wellness checks to looking up if you have certain conditions or not. It's amazing how wide the range is, and you don't even have to leave your home. You don't have to set up an appointment, go across town, wait six Six weeks to get some simple test done. It comes right to your house, easy to follow instructions. You put in whatever sample is needed for the test, put it back in the box, it ships back out, and within two to five days, you have results. You can even schedule a follow-up call with one of their doctors, one of their clinicians that can go over any abnormalities or answer any questions you have. And in some cases, the clinical team can even prescribe medication, which can be sent to the pharmacy of your choice. If you would like to try one of their 30-plus at-home tests, use the URL link in the show notes at trylgc.com ASP and use the code ASP25 at checkout for 25% off. Again, that's ASP25 for 25% off off at the link in the show notes. I've really enjoyed the process of getting some tests done that I've always wanted to, but just didn't feel like going through the hassle, but it's important. It's important to do, and I think you're going to enjoy it too. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. Sometimes I always joke that like Nicolette is the expert and sometimes I'm the sidekick. I would say that, mm, Nicolette possesses a majority of like the hard skills uh, as far as what we needed out there. And I, I was, I was kind of thinking about this question actually before the interview. And I think one thing that we can really give credit to is um, when we went to school at Adams state university in uh, Alamosa, Colorado, Nicolette was in like the outdoor leadership minor. And uh, actually, you know, that's like, I think where we both, uh, me just by proximity some of our first like real introductions to some of the hard skills that we wound up using out there like just the experience of winter camping in in general for Nicolette and backpacking and the kind of where like some of our risk management philosophy came from and everything else and it's for yeah as far as like the impetus for the idea goes I think it was definitely me kind of trying to reach out after being after after opting not to go with Nicolette on the CDTs, I was like, well, I don't know. I think that there's something that I could do with her that we would both be uh, really excited about. That's that's where the idea came from, and I think where a lot of the skills started. Nick, did you have anything to add? Yeah, I think like what Mark was referencing is that this was definitely a trip that was going to challenge like skills that we both had. I had only been backcountry skiing for like a year, really, maybe, yeah, just a year before when Mark came up with the idea. 
And then by the time we actually were on trail, it had been a couple of years more. So Mark had been skiing for a little while longer and I, I had become really interested in long distance travel like this. And so it was definitely obvious that it would be a really good way to, to challenge ourselves and challenge like some of the skills that we had. But definitely we, we knew from the onset that really like learning to, to winter camp was going to be the biggest challenge in, in preparing for the trail. So that winter before we did the trail, we spent like almost every one of our weekends just like lugging all of our stuff out into the snow somewhere and like setting up camp for a night and like, you know, maybe skiing a couple, a couple laps. Um, and then, you know, like <laughs> trudging back out and drying out all our stuff and trying to figure out what worked and what didn't. Yeah, that. And then also Nicolette was pretty insistent that we both have our um, airy level two that we both completed our airy level two avalanche like safety courses, which was a good idea. And, and that's also why we chose to do it in the springtime was obviously for the avalanche risk. But, um, you know, as, as far as snow specific thing is, is, yeah, we took the avalanche courses and you just got to spend a lot of time skiing in really crummy conditions. <laughs> Golly, man, that's, that's wild. Tell us about some of the the planning for this around, because I, I, I read some of your trip reports and what you've written. And one thing that really stuck out was how important the community was and how you don't think you could have done this without people's help. Did you know that going in when you were planning? Were you saying, oh, it's going to take, you know, the um, the uh, emotional support of friends, seeing friends on a regular basis? Because, you know, with, with the winter, especially higher latitude, somewhere like Colorado, it's shorter days. It gets dark really, really early. So you have a lot of darkness. What was the plan? You know, did you anticipate needing friends and having that support? And if not, do you think you would have made it without it? Yeah, I think from the onset, we were we were pretty ready to kind of utilize our friends in the area to just help logistically, just planning resupplies in the winter. We knew that that it would be really helpful to have to have people um, helping us, and we were ready to to take that help. I don't think we we realized how emotionally important that would be. Yeah, we we knew that there would be certain challenges in being out for this long in the in the spring or like in the snowpack um, in the winter backcountry. I don't think we really anticipated or understood until we were out there just what like the the moments between um, the people that were helping us and us really really would mean to us. Yeah, and, and like as a reference. We saw more people on sections of the CDT or of the Colorado Trail when we were preparing, like in the middle of winter, than we did when we were actually out there. Like there is pretty much nobody on the trail in the month of April when we did this. Like, you know, I think we saw one group of snowshoers near Tennessee Pass, like another group of four skiers near Monarch Pass. And then we saw some people at a hut near Leadville. And then we did not see literally anyone else on the trail until we got to, you know, like the Junction Creek area of Durango, which um, which was surprising because it's they're heavily trafficked areas. Like we didn't even see any snowmobilers. Jeez. You know, lots of snowmobile tracks. But uh, the other thing, too, about our friends is, yeah, I think it made us feel... Mm, 
really fortunate too when we were planning the resupplies that we had friends at nearly like every stop who could just um who could meet us there you know we had a friend in denver drive us to the trailhead a friend in summit cove who left stay at his house you know just and on and on and on at nearly every single stop and so it was like okay like we're super lucky to already have kind of like the infrastructure of people who you know know about us and care who, who love us and care about us and um are ready to help just there. So what was the reaction that people had when you told them you were going to ski the Colorado trail were, were people, I mean, what was it generally? Oh, that's, that's really cool. Or like, yeah, you definitely shouldn't do that. There were kind of several reactions we got. I think leading, leading up to it, I didn't tell a lot of people. I don't know. I, I feel like maybe Mark was a little bit more communicative, but just because it was such a lofty goal for us, I didn't go around telling people that we were going to do it. I don't think it was until maybe like we had maybe gotten like three or 400 miles in that I tar- started saying that we're going to ski the Colorado Trail. Up until that point, <laughs> Out of it was 500 always, miles? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Up until then, it was always like, oh, we're going to try to do a ski traverse of the Colorado Trail. Um and then going into it, I really only talked to the people who we were like asking to help us about it. And so a lot of those people that were that were closest to us were were really supportive and excited about it. It was that we both had a really big fear of failure and of being like, we're gonna do this epic thing, and then just totally like falling flat on our faces over, you know, maybe some seemingly like insignificant detail that actually like ruined the whole trip and everybody being like so those were the people who said that they you know who told the whole world that they were going to do this and then just like didn't and and then you know i had a friend who had told us a a while back like just in in relation to bike racing goals too is that like sharing your goals like psychologically feels just as good as as doing them and so i think we were kind of trying to avoid that mental trap of like trying you know telling people that we were going to do something that was important to us instead of actually doing it so that's a really that's interesting but yeah i can i can definitely see that telling people about it is sometimes psychologically just as gratifying as doing it until you actually do it then it's like okay this sure, is yeah i mean it feels good to tell people like we're gonna do something incredible and people are like wow that is incredible and then you know you can walk away from that interaction and be like yep <laughs> Yeah, no, I think that definitely describes our, our experience leading up to it. So all of that to say is that by the time we were actually talking to people about it, either like we were we were already doing it or it was a pretty, pretty select group of people. But we generally like kind of categorized the responses that we got into into three different categories. And there's like the people who we really knew and who were excited for us and who kind of understood like why we were we were trying this. And then there's people who just kind of have have no concept of of what we were doing, which to some degree was was us leading into it. It's like we didn't we didn't really know how hard it would be until we were out there, and you just kind of get the like, damn, that's crazy response. And then there's people who who don't really understand, but yeah, maybe um, like you mentioned, Mason, who were like, I don't know about that. Seems seems kind of dangerous. You know, we got got asked a lot of questions about um, how we were how we were going to manage risk out there and like whether whether it was like really safe to do. But I think a lot of times too, uh, people were just unimpressed is that like so little understanding of or like ski traverses in general are just not very popular. And so just talking about doing a ski traverse at all, people are kind of like, oh, that sounds kind of weird. <laughs> 
Yeah, like telling somebody that you did like a continuous ski traverse of the Colorado Trail, like you might as well have told somebody you did like a continuous rollerblade of the Iditarod or something. <laughs> is like they're like, all right, that doesn't seem like a thing. And so, and you know, I guess maybe maybe it's not, but I, I think it's surprising given the fact that it's been hiked, you know, hundreds of thousands of times and mountain biked a similar amount. Um, it was surprising given Colorado's connection to skiing that as far as we are aware, nobody has done like a continuous start at one end, finish at the other end, one push on mostly snow, like in skis as the primary form of transport. So I've, I've done most of the Colorado trail and on a bike actually, Mark. And, um, so probably similar to the style you would have preferred to do it, <laughs> but uh, it was not easy. And I can't imagine all that covered in snow, what it was like. How how was route finding? How was dealing with avalanche risk? Tell us about tell, tell us about that difficulty. Was it difficult to stay on course? Were there places that weren't covered in snow? What did you do when you came across that? I would say like route finding and navigation took up took up a majority of, of our energy on trail. I mean, not in self-care, but you know, when we were, when we were hiking in snow, like below tree line, I think just, we spent a lot of time just looking for the trail, like looking for physical markers, whether it was like blazes or cut logs, I would actually have dreams at night about like walking through the trail corridor and like seeing, like trying to like look for the trail. Cause you just like, you know, it's one of those things that when you see it, sometimes you can like stay on it for, for a really long time. And then all of a sudden you'd like lose it and you'd just be like wandering through the trees um, and we'd be getting out our GPSs. So we used, we used our phone GPS for navigation. We use um, CalTopo, but just like a GPS map, uh, topographic mapping app. You know, avalanche risk was, was an ongoing assessment. Being hiking in the spring was like our biggest or like the best way to mitigate a lot of that avalanche risk. But there is some pretty, pretty substantial reroutes that we had to take where we were looking at the terrain ahead of us, looking at the map and like looking at the weather conditions. And, you know, we were like, like coming into Hope Pass, for example, we, um, there had been a big storm the night before and Hope Pass is this like north facing feature. And we looked at it and it was just like totally wind loaded. And it's, it's a pretty steep pass. And so we were like, we, we can't, that's not, not a reasonable risk for us to take. So we did this like 20 mile reroute. <laughs> we, we hiked around the like fin that Hope Pass is connected to and then back up a dirt road to get back to the, back to the trail there. So we were making those, those decisions pretty, pretty regularly. And a lot of times having to do, or not a lot of times, but there were, there were like two or three major areas of the trail where we, we like Hope Pass where we had to do an avalanche reroute, but but mostly day-to-day, like avalanche risk, we weren't seeing like red light avalanche conditions um, or we weren't on like red light avalanche terrain where we really had to worry about that. And then just generally, we, you know, started every day, like looking at our maps, seeing like where the official trail went and then where like it made sense for for us to travel. And then, yeah, like you said, there's definitely parts of the trail that just didn't, didn't have snow um, or where the snowpack, we would be like in a transition zone. So we'd be like, hiking down to like Cochitoba Pass, for example, it was really intermittent snow. And so there would be like 20 yards of snow <laughs> that was all like five, a, a, like five foot drift for 20 yards. And then it would be like bare for 20 yards. And those were, that was some of the slowest travels. That was so tedious. And there was, you know, we were traveling in the springtime too. So there's all these like down trees over the trail as well. And so 
navigating, yeah, like patchy snow, down trees. There'd be like times where we were lucky if we were moving like a mile and a half an hour. And that was like moving a mile and a half an hour, or like moving the whole time. We were like barely moving a mile and a half an hour. So that could be really tedious. And yeah, deciding whether we should have our skis on or off um, or just be booting through or whether we should have skins on or be like trying to to slide downhill or slide over the top of the snow was certainly like a, a pretty taxing endeavor, just making decisions on how to move through through that terrain and that snow. To compartmentalize it, you know, something that I said actually pretty frequently to other people who had a similar question is, you know, of the 485 miles of trail, I think that we were like just doing outright snow travel for like 300 to 350 miles. And then the rest of it was just, you know, hiking in the spring. But, you know, even if there was in, in within 20 miles of hiking in the spring, there would be like one mile of snow travel. Like we really needed the snow travel equipment nearly every single day. Otherwise, I, I consider would have considered it to be at least impassable. And then, oh, the avalanche reroutes. I think that we did the two major reroutes. Uh, the one that Nick was talking about with Hope Pass and then near... Mola's Pass, we did another major reroute around a section of trail. But I think that those were really, other than those two reroutes, we were really like on the actual trail for, I would say, at least like 95%, if not like 98% of the whole thing. I don't know if you'd agree with that, Nick. Yeah, I think so. You know, the, the actual trail is relative because there's just some spots where it would be like, the trail kind of meanders um, below ridgeline and it makes sense to travel on the trail, you know, when it's summer, but like in the, in the spring when we were traveling with snow conditions, it would just make sense to like stay, stay on the ridgeline or stay where there's snow. Um, And so there was a lot of like little, little decisions like that, where it was like, you know, since we had the spring snowpack, we might just travel like straight across a valley rather than doing like a, a big contour around it. You had, you had that ability to, yeah. Create your own path sometimes too. That makes a lot of sense, actually. Tell us about what what was unexpected, like an unexpected benefit of being able to ski the trail. Was it like the downhills where you just kind of, you know, go a little quicker, or was it something else? T- tell us about an unexpected uh, joy or benefit that you came across. Any time that we were actually skiing felt like such an unbelievable win. Like so much of the skiing was just you know, honestly, not that great. But anytime we were, it would be like cheering and high-fiving to be able to like cover, you know, a a mile of of ground on skis, like actually just, you know, gliding along the snow. Um, But I I don't know if I would call that an unexpected benefit. I'm trying to think of there were times out there, there were lots of uh, unexpected drawbacks but I'm trying to think if there was any time. <laughs> I was trying to was... stay positive, but I imagine there's <laughs> there's more unexpected negative than positive. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that there was definitely some point where it was like, oh, like we wouldn't be, you know, it was, I think that, that maybe the most, like Nicolette was saying um, to your previous question, was it was kind of nice when the trail would like uh, kind of, you know, crescent moon around the basin uh, like traverse the high and we could just like ski straight down one side across and then just skin up the other and go straight line and we actually would maybe go like 
marginally faster or at least less slow than if we had just kept our skins on and traversed around. I don't know if Nick can think of an unexpected benefit. Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest benefit of it, doing it is something that we've referenced already, but just what what a unique experience it was is that like is that there was nobody else out there. As it turns out, like April um, is probably the least traveled month, least traveled month on the Colorado Trail based based on our experience. And just to like be in the backcountry in the winter is there were just some some spots like you know especially I think in the West Collegiate Loop um, and in the the South San Juans where we were just in in these like incredible wilderness places and you know nobody nobody had been out there for months or like you know we we skied down this drainage north of Cottonwood Pass that you know it it felt like nobody had ever skied down it before we were. We were off the official trail at, at that point. That was part of our kind of like Hope Pass reroute. And it was just, it was crazy to be there. You know, we had gotten up at like 3 a.m. To, to hike up this this high alpine drainage. And the there was like a full moon. And, you know, we get to the, the top of this drainage at sunrise. And we're like surrounded by the apostles. And like we can see Mount Huron and like Ice Mountain. And looking down this drainage where there's no trail, but we're going to like ski down to it and down it and connect back up to the trail on the other side was pretty incredible. And so that experience, I think, was the the most unexpected benefit um, or, yeah, biggest benefit of doing it on skis, really, is that is that it is such a unique and, and beautiful experience. And I think for me, over the past couple of years, like discovering discovering the backcountry in winter has been such a such an amazing part of of the way that that we're living right now and of of learning to backcountry ski and getting to do the ski traverse really felt like a, a culmination of that. What did you, I mean, that sounds, what do you describing? That sounds amazing. Two questions here. How, how did you deal with the shorter days with it getting dark so early? Um, I guess it was getting longer than, well, actually, when does time change? Yeah, I think the time, I, yeah, the time did change before we, we, Oh yeah, it's in same. March. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the other thing too, was that sunset on average was uh, like around seven o'clock when we were doing it. So they weren't that oh much gosh. shorter, but what bad. happened that made our days actually shorter was the afternoon sun would just turn the springtime snow into the most like awful substance on earth. Like just like knee deep post tolling, collapsing slush. Like as we pretty much, Every single day, I think our goal was to be like done moving through snow by like three because it just wasn't even worth it at that point. So we were doing a lot of like wake up at like 3 a.m. and be at camp by 3 p.m. Wow. What would you do for the remainder of the day? I wish I could say we just relaxed, but one of the realities of of like winter camping is that there's just so, so much gear to manage. Um that like our time at camp was always busy and our goal was to be at camp at 3 p.m. But often, you know, the snow would get soft before we expected. And in order to make it to like where we wanted to camp, we would still like have to slog through snow for for a couple hours. And then actually like scouting for camp or like finding water was was often really challenging. Like finding and collecting running water um, always took like quite a bit of time before we got to camp. And so just between like all all the camp chores, we were still, you know, it would be like, I mean, we were ready. We were ready to sleep whenever, whenever we were done with them. So, like as soon as you know, we could um, kind of get all of our gear organized, get like our camp set up, 
get dinner cooked, eat, and do everything else that like we needed to just to kind of like maintain our basic level of self-care. Um, you know, maybe we spend some time like looking at maps or something, but um, we were we were ready, ready to fall asleep. Yeah, getting up that early, I imagine. You were pretty exhausted pretty early. Yeah, yeah, totally. yeah. And the analogy that I always use for like what Nicolette is saying with the gear management is like, you know, even when I go on a hut trip and there's like, you know, this serene little cabin with like a ripping wood fire and, you know, a mug room to dry out your stuff is it's like you get out from a day of skiing at the hut trip and like drying out your skins and boot liners and managing all your gear and cooking dinner and stuff can be feel overwhelming or at least to, to me it can and like definitely trying to do the same thing from our like uh, floorless tarp was the, the kind of extreme of that gear management at the end of a day of skiing. Wow. H- how, did you deal with any storms or any blizzards or anything like that where, where you just had to stop? And if so, what was some of the worst weather you faced? Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that help make this show possible. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. Yeah, it was a relatively dry spring. You know, we didn't see as many sp- storms as as we might have, but we definitely had to had to deal with a few storms. Um, really, the the coldest we ever got, and I think the only time where we were like, we have to, we like bailed off the trail and we were like, we have to like bail down to the trees and make camp now was coming over Georgia pass. There was a storm coming in and that was like our first day really in the Alpine on skis. And, um, we actually, we came over Georgia pass at like 6 PM maybe. And so we were like already pushing into the evening and then it was like snowing and blowing wind and we were above tree line and we were route finding and, it was like our first time on trail kind of managing all of these issues and then managing them all at once. And, you know, we got to a point where we were like, okay, we're not going to make it to tree line on trail tonight. We just need to ski down the slope and get to tree line and make camp now. And like, that was, that was the coldest I've ever been is like, we were making camp and there's like a point where we're like stomping out our spot and um, we're getting in the tent and like we'd gotten in the tent and I was just so cold that there's no, there's no part of me anymore that was like, Cold. It wasn't like, oh, like, you know, my fingers are really cold. Like I had warmed up enough that it wasn't like I wasn't feeling the sensation of cold anywhere, but I was just still shivering. Like I just couldn't stop shivering um, until we finally like got some, some hot drink in us. And then, um, yeah, for, for the lack of snow we saw this spring, it was, it was terribly windy. And I would say that was, that was the hardest um, weather phenomenon for us to deal with. You know, they said it was one of the windiest Aprils on, on record in Colorado. And so just day to day, um, dealing with the wind while we were hiking, um, you know, we would try to take breaks in wind sheltered areas, but it was, it was really just, a I guess a, a mental test most of the time hiking through the wind. I don't know. Are there any other, other memorable storms for you, Mark? No, all I can do is add on to that experience on Georgia Pass is it was, it was seriously, Mm, kind of the most intense moment of the trip from like a danger perspective you know we did like some steep steep skiing and like other you know stuff that was like mm, i don't know like intense uh, you know you know i guess there's some moderate like difficulty or danger involved but that moment is like you know we had been hiking in our ski boots in the mud earlier in the day 
when it was like warm as a storm was like you know blowing warm air over or whatever and and then like once the storm got there all the mud like froze into uh the like tech binding pinholes on our ski boots and so there's there's this moment where we're like hunkered down behind this tree and like ripping winds bona fide whiteout conditions and like we had ripped skins and we couldn't click into our skis because they were like frozen full of packed mud <laughs> and so we had to like pull out our tent stakes and like scrape like we're hungered down behind this tree like freezing cold like trying to like get mud out of the tech pinholes in our boots it was it was i would say like actually pretty scary and you know we had to that evening use one of like our kind of last ditch options for um for getting warm uh on nicolette which is like you know and we didn't have water that night either so we were just melting snow with our little uh isobutane stove which for anyone who hasn't done that is just painstakingly slow like when we talk about camp just taking more time like that night we probably spent straight up like five to seven hours just melting snow the entire night to get like all the water that we needed for camp. And so to warm Nicolette up, we'd like melt snow into to the point that it was boiling hot and then fill Nalgings with the boiling hot water and stick them in Nicolette's sleeping bag to like actually get warm, which is pretty effective, but um, you know, definitely felt closer to like the true danger of that trip, which is just like, you know, well, if our stove had broken or something else, you know, we had our inReach or whatever, but it's also just like at the point, you know, if you hit the little inReach button, it's the middle of a snowstorm in the middle of the night. Like, it's not like the cavalry is coming out to the middle of the Colorado backcountry at 11 p.m. to save, you know, somebody who's freezing. That's that what I say would be like the most extreme moment of it for sure. Yeah. Good Lord. Yeah, y'all, y'all do make this before telling this story. Y'all are making this seem <laughs> way too easy. <laughs> like y'all's demeanor is just like, yeah, we just went out and did this. And not going to lie, this is a very daunting adventure to me that I would, I don't think I would ever do this um, because of the cold, because of exactly the story you just said. That sounds, I, that's like a nightmare to me. So uh, yeah, I'm, at, I'm surprised you weren't facing that more, but to even hear that one experience, I imagine it got, pretty serious pretty quickly so the 27 days you were out there i don't think we mentioned that you know just under a month um wh- wh- what do you feel it did for y'all and your relationship did you feel like you got closer i did read that you uh just ran out of things to talk about a lot of the time <laughs> but wh- what did it do for y'all uh, uh, as a partnership because that's that's quite in a, a a thing to put yourself through do you mind if i speak first nicolette go for it Definitely when we were out there, we were like backcountry and ski partners more than romantic partners. Like that was just the dynamic for sure. You know, it was certainly a luxury to be out there with your romantic partner. But I would say like most of the communicating that we were doing and everything is is how I would like communicate or interacted with um any ski partner that I was out there, which is just like, I think how the relationship needs to be when you're, when you're in the backcountry like that in general, from that standpoint, you know, and, and we would always joke too. We had an interaction at like a retail store where we were like shopping for skis and kind of explaining what we were doing. And somebody was like, wow, this will really be a test for your relationship. And so we'd always kind of 
like jab at each other about that. But, um, you know, I don't think it was any uh, more testing of a romantic relationship than it what would be of just any um, ski partner relationship. Yeah. And I guess as far as like how, how it's affected our relationship, I feel like it's, it's worth mentioning that we did the ski traverse in the spring and then this fall we, we got engaged. So, you know, long-term, I, I feel like it's, it's a, been a contributing factor to just strengthening yeah, our relationship. Awesome. But a couple of years ago, um, Mark's, Mark's dad died and um, we, we took care of him in, in in-home hospice care. And I think that that was um, like, the most challenging thing that we've we've ever done together and so you know mark was mark was talking about like the when we were shopping for skis the guys being like oh this is going to be such a such a test on your relationship and i don't think that we at all felt like our relationship needed needed to be tested that we had kind of had had experiences um that had where we'd been able to prove to ourselves that, that our relationship could take like whatever whatever the challenges that we were going to face but that doesn't mean that like we didn't we didn't face challenges um while we were out there but certainly the like i felt like that those challenges built built resilience for us um and i don't know just continued to to provide us that perspective that um yeah our our relationship can can withstand certain hardship and that we're we're willing to to push through hard times and that we can um i don't know achieve goals like this together Wow. Yeah. Thank you for that backstory too. You know, go, going through that real life challenge together, you know, makes voluntary adventures like the one you did, honestly, not a piece of cake, but much more manageable. And that's, that's what I tell people on the show. You know, it's like, I don't know if I can do this adventure. That's so, you know, I want to do something like this. I don't know if I got it in me. And I'm always telling folks, like, your real-life experience, whether that's, you know, dealing with a situation like that with your dad, Mark, or raising kids or going through getting fired or a breakup, anything like that gives you all the things you need to do a lot of the adventures we talk about. It's really just applying those skills and applying that resilience or determination to biking or hiking or getting through a landscape um, it's so transferable and that's really cool to hear that that it, uh, it w- was your foundational experience of a challenge together then putting it through t- to the test on an, an adventure and uh, ultimately yeah it sounds like things progressed to the point you got engaged so that's that's a good sign <laughs> that's a good sign totally like that's that's totally the case like anybody if you can raise a teenager you have the mental tenacity to do a ski traverse of the Colorado trail. Real life is so much harder than, <laughs> than outdoor, you know, fun. <laughs> that is so true. And we're always trying to say that it's like, you know, when you go and do an adventure, it's voluntary, you know, this is voluntary quote suffering or, uh, uh obstacles. You don't have to do this. So I'm always blown away by, you know, my parents or folks that are, dealing with that stuff that they don't necessarily sign up for yet they have a positive attitude yet they're they're dealing with it with such grace and and strength that's honestly the most inspiring it's just people don't want to hear podcasts about that <laughs> well i guess they do there are plenty of podcasts out there but we are we're talking about taking those skills and putting them in the outdoors tell us this as we wrap up is there anything else you'd like to leave our listeners with either the biggest lesson or one of the biggest lessons you learned on this experience or uh, what's next for y'all um tell us about it. any any closing remarks yeah i think i think 
we we feel like really really lucky to have been able to do this and i think i guess for me one of the biggest lessons maybe from this and from from through hiking in general is that it feels like just staying on that theme that you talked about about like a, what it takes to to take on adventures like this or um just to take on adventures in the outdoors is it it certainly feels easier once you've once you've done one to to start dreaming of and doing more is like just while I was out on the CDT is that we were able to dream up this plan and then doing this has opened up so many, so many more doors and made it feel so much more possible to do, to do other things. And so I think just, just taking that, that first step and, and really having this experience now, one of the things that I value about it most is just that, that it has opened up so many other possibilities. And now like winter camping and ski traversing, are a reality for us and we can look forward to and and plan um, other adventures. Anything for you, Mark? I was just going to say the the one thing that I had to, I guess, want people to take away from the trip is like, if anybody has any ambition of doing this, of, of doing the, you know, a ski traverse, the Colorado Trail, it's very possible, probably not as hard as you think. And like, I don't know, the, the, Things that I would consider that you really need to have is like you need to be good at skiing in bad conditions, like a good foundation on avalanche safety and, you know, good winter camping skills and then good backcountry snow navigation. If you have those four things, like you can definitely do it. And anybody who has the ambition to try, like, please reach out to us. Like, I want to see um, other people do it and maybe for it to become more of a thing. First of all, Thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to this show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast. Link is in the show notes. And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out. Email us at info at adventuresportspodcast.com. And until then, get out there and have some fun.